and dismiss our younger children to Children's Church. The rest of you want to get out your sermon outline. Should be in bright yellow today. The promise of Christ. We are nearing the end of John chapter 14. And today we're in verses 15 through 26. Note that we've now been, this is the 52nd sermon. So you've officially spent a year's worth of Sundays in John. Took us 13 months to fit it in, but you know, it's kind of how it goes. So, John chapter 14, starting at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a long and difficult passage this morning of your word. We pray that you might give us the ability to understand it, to apply it, to hear it, to make it part of our lives. Father, give us the faith to believe as your word works in each one of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just this month, the world lost probably the greatest male singer of the last half of the 20th century, the great Italian tenor Luciano Pavarotti. He died after losing a battle with cancer. His last public performance was at the Torino Olympic Games, where he sang his signature song, Nessun Dorma. 
Nessendorma is Italian, and it translates to let no one sleep. It's the great crescendo from the last act of Giacomo Puccini's opera, Torandot. And Pavarotti sang it like no one else. He was known as the king of the high seas, which is a note that most men can't hit. And not only did he have an incredible voice, but he was equally flamboyant and full of life. He not only sang opera, but pop songs as well, mostly in benefit concerts for children of war-torn areas. And I produced a series of CDs called Pavarotti and Friends for the benefit of the children of Bosnia or the children of, you know, name whatever war-torn place there is. And in those concerts, he invited an incredible variety of stars from both song and stage, and he sang with people ranging from the Spice Girls to Sting. One of his biographers said that he would sing everything, everywhere, with everyone. And uh, there was a lot of truth to that. But he was struck with cancer, and he passed away earlier this month. And that magnificent voice has been lost to us. Ironically, also this month, a new CD was released by a previously unknown tenor named Paul Potts. The name Paul Potts certainly doesn't have quite the same ring to it as does Luciano Pavarotti. If you're not familiar with the story of Paul Potts, let me fill you in. Last spring, Paul Potts was a mobile phone salesman in Cardiff, South Wales, in Great Britain. And he decided to audition for the television show Britain's Got Talent, which is essentially a very similar uh, version, their version of American Idol. Actually, American Idol is a spin-off of Britain's Got Talent, and we actually have three spin-offs, but this was the original show. And he came out for his audition wearing a sort of an ill-fitting sport coat, and, you know, it was nice, but it kind of was a little too big for him, and he's sort of a big guy anyways. And, and he shocked the judges when they asked him, including Simon Cowell, who many of you are familiar with, uh, they asked him, what are you here for, Paul? To sing opera, he answered, with this big gap-toothed grin. Obviously unassuming, painfully shy, the judges were openly skeptical of Paul Potts. And then he opened his mouth to sing. His chosen song was Puccini's Nessendorma, the signature song of Luciano Pavarotti. And he sang it so well that the audience erupted into cheers partway through and gave him a standing ovation. The judges got goosebumps. And Simon Cowell said, and I quote, So you work at Carphone Warehouse, and you did that. I wasn't expecting that, Paul. That was a complete brush of fresh air. I thought you were absolutely fantastic. Now, if you ever watched American Idol, those are not words that normally come out of Simon Cowell's mouth. Well, Paul Potts went on to win the contest. Simon Cowell produced his CD, which was released just this month in the United States, and his already sold-out concert tours 
uh, in Britain starts in January. And you can go to Google Video or YouTube, same thing, and type in Paul Potts and watch his audition and his winning performances. And you can see the people just come alive as they hear him. And the whole audience just rise as one. You can also watch an interview he gave on the Today Show and listen as he describes how he was bullied as a boy. And he was not real attractive and not real popular and not real athletic and basically he was bullied. And he found his escape in music. And so the interviewer from the Today Show asked him, Paul, you're having a CD come out. You have a concert tour. You're going to sing for the Queen. What would you say to those bullies now? And he said, well, I think in some ways the bullying I had probably made me who I am. So in some ways, thank you. But in other ways, I hope those people who were bullied would see me as a little bit of an inspiration and go out there and take a risk. Luciano Pavarotti has passed away. Paul Potts has arrived. What does this amazing story have to do with John 14? Well, here we see, once again, we're told more clearly than ever that Jesus is going away. But someone else is coming. Jesus had been preparing them for his departure for some time, but they haven't understood. They don't understand. They don't really realize what's happening. And then in the upper room, the day before his crucifixion, he announces that he's leaving, but that someone else is coming. And the disciples are upset. They're not interested in someone else. They want him. So the first thing we see is Jesus is talking to them. He's telling them he's going to leave. So the night before his crucifixion, he's in the upper room. They've already had the Last Supper. He's already uh, sent Jesus away. He's already predicted Peter's betrayal. And he's speaking to his disciples. And so he wants to tell them about this other person who's coming. And that's the first thing we see here, is this other person is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is our advocate. The Holy Spirit is our advocate. Verses 16 through 20, and then verse 26. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And then verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, First time in the Gospel of John where you get the full title. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
Now, the word used here for another helper, or in some translations, counselor, or in others, comforter, is actually a Greek legal term. Stale said earlier, we like Greek legal stuff. But this is not referring to a, a helper in terms of having an assistant, nor is this referring to a counselor in terms of uh, the sense of a marriage counseling. This refers to a counselor who is an attorney, not unlike a, a courtroom scene where the judge asks the attorney, will counsel approach the bench? Counsel's referring to the defense attorney. And that's the kind of counselor or helper that Jesus is referring to, our defense attorney, the one you turn to when you need help, the family lawyer, our advocate. That's how that word is is being used here. Now, there's another grammatical point in this verse that we need to understand because it colors everything that follows. And it's found again in this phrase, another helper. See, there's two different Greek words that can be translated another. Allos and heteros. Allos, which is used here, means another of the same kind. Heteros means another of a different kind. And the difference would be clearly seen if I uh, came in this morning and held up a golden, delicious apple in front of the church and announced that I was going to distribute apples to every person here. However, when I went to the grocery store, I was not able to buy enough golden, delicious apples, so I had to purchase some red, delicious apples. And the result is that some people would get red, delicious apples, and other people would get golden, delicious apples. And those with red delicious apples would have another of the different kind, heteros, but those with golden delicious apples would have another of the same kind, allos, just like the one I had held up. And here Jesus is using the word allos. He's describing the coming helper, which means another of the same kind, another helper just like him. Jesus is comforting his disciples by assuring them that they did not need to be troubled at his leaving because the helper he would send was just like him. There'd be no loss in the exchange. So much so are they the same that in Romans 8 9, the Apostle Paul calls, calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. And here in verse 17, he's called the Spirit of Truth. And we read, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. The world cosmos is an important word in this next uh, four chapters of John, the upper room discourse. It occurs about 40 times in this upper room scene that we get in John. And it stands here for the unbelieving world, the sinful mass of humanity to which the gospel will come among whom the followers of Christ must live and work, and out of which the Lord will call his own. And then we see, we get through that, we see we have another helper, the same kind, just like Jesus. He's our advocate, and he's coming to us. And the world isn't going to get it. And then he says in verse 18, 
I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now here he's not talking about returning to them after the resurrection. But rather he's trying to let them know that his coming to them is a consequence of the resurrection. That when Jesus ascends to his Father, the Holy Spirit is poured forth upon the church. And Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, comes to his disciples again. And they understood this afterwards. The Apostle John understood it when he came to write his gospel. He understood then what Jesus meant when he said that. And what is being described here is the active presence of God, both the Father and the Son, by means of the Holy Spirit's presence uh, with them and within them. Now, to the unbeliever, life is defined by the absence of God, or at least the distance of God. He or she does not think of a living God, the Almighty, being near, being available, being a present uh, father, friend, provider, defender. But now, you see, the disciples are confronted with a very similar question. They've spent three years with Jesus, with the Son of God. He talked to them and cared for them and performed unbelievable works of power right before their eyes, and he showed them his love. But suddenly, he tells them that he's leaving them. And they've got to be thinking, are we too now uh, going to live a life defined by the absence of God or by the distance of God? And Christ's answer is no. God will be with you. I will be with you in the way I was before I came among you as a man, in the way of the Holy Spirit. So here in the closing verses of John 14, several aspects of the Holy Spirit are drawn to our attention. And the first is the presence of the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, Jesus says, I will come to you. In verse 20, he says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father. Verse 21, I will love him and manifest myself to him. And he's talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that as a consequence of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God the Father, the Holy Spirit is poured forth upon the church. Verses 16 and 17, He, God the Father, will give you another helper to be with you forever even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot uh, receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then jumping down to verse 26, but the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, as I said here for the first time in John, we have the full title, the Holy Spirit. And furthermore, we see here, John uses the masculine pronoun, signaling to us the Holy Spirit is not an it. As we've previously learned, the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He's God of God and Lord of Lords. And Jesus is saying, I will go away, but I will come to you, and I will come to you personally, and I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit, and it will be the Holy Spirit's ministry to make me known to you, to make my presence known to you. Now, that's not the first time John has recorded words of Jesus about the Holy Spirit. All the way back in John 7, at the Feast of the Tabernacles, if you remember, there was an astonishing ritual on the great day of the feast. The priest would go to the pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher full of water, and he would bring it up to the temple and pour it over uh, the altar and down a funnel. It would bring 
water, water to the very base of the altar there for the sacrifice. And uh, it was associated with several prophecies of the Old Testament, in the closing chapters of Zechariah and Isaiah 12 especially, where he says, I'll draw waters from the wells of salvation. And then Jesus stands up at that great feast. And he says, let me tell you about water. John seven thirty nine. he says, uh, earlier than that, he says, and out of you will flow rivers of living water. And then John seven thirty nine. now this Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So he told them all the way back in John 7, the Holy Spirit is coming. So we see that Jesus talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, first in terms of the presence of Jesus, but not only that, he also talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit as a teacher. He's indicating what kind of ministry the Holy Spirit has. And it's a ministry of instruction, a ministry of uh, education in the truth of the gospel. He speaks words that come from him, but also which come from the Father in heaven. Again, verse 26. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, there's not a little here, Uh, about the way in which the Bible itself was inspired by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and using instruments like the Apostle John to remind him of things that Jesus said and did and to compose this wonderful gospel for us. But it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is our great teacher. The disciples and us continue to have a teacher, even after Jesus goes to be with the Father. And they don't have to worry about what this new teacher is going to teach them. Jesus says he teaches the truth. John 16, 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. It's the spirit who teaches us what Jesus said and who applies to that uh, teaching to all Christians in every age, including you and me today. The teaching of Jesus is the foundation of the church. So what is he going to teach? He says he's going to be the teacher. He's going to teach what he's heard. He's going to teach what Jesus said. He's going to teach what he's heard from the Father. What will he teach? Verse 20. In that day, the day of Pentecost, the day of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, You will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, it sounds a little bit like a tongue twister there. But the Holy Spirit is saying, I will teach that Jesus is in the Father, and that you are in him. Think about that. It's an extraordinary thing to say. I will teach that Jesus is in the Father, and you are in him. Think about what's being said here. John is using these little words, these little prepositions. Jesus is in the Father, and you are in Jesus. Now, it's so simple to say, but that contains some of the most profound truths known to us. That Jesus and the Father have a relationship in which they are in one another. 
And that opens up for us a little bit of what John goes on to say in his epistle, 1 John, which was our responsive reading this morning. He's saying that our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. And the Holy Spirit has come to teach us the depths of God. But not only that. Look again what he says, verse 20. That I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. It's not just the relationship of the Son and the Father, but also the relationship that you and I have with Jesus. We are in Christ. It's a teaching that Jesus is now just beginning to unfold, and he's going to elaborate on it. In the next chapter, in John 15, we get the great story of the vine and the branches, and how the branches are part of the vine, and they draw their life from the vine. They are in the vine. And this is the Spirit's teaching, our union with Christ. And these men in the upper room are going to be used as instruments of God in making that truth known. So we see here in these verses, the Holy Spirit is one, just like Jesus. Two, he brings the presence of Jesus into our everyday lives. And three, he teaches us what Jesus has said so that we might be able to believe and obey him. Remember now, from the very beginning of this series on John, we've noticed that John summons one witness after the other on behalf of Jesus Christ. John brings forward uh, all sorts of various uh, people who have encountered Jesus and can tell what they've learned about him from their own experience. We had stories of when he called the disciples and Andrew and Peter and Nathaniel, the woman at the well and the man born blind. You know, all examples of these witnesses that John's calling. What has Jesus done? How has he called you? How has Jesus changed your life? And the various miracles with, uh, which Jesus performs are signs that bear witness to him. And throughout the gospel, the reader is constantly being invited to come to his own verdict on the strength of the witness that has been given to Jesus. And if you go through the chapters, it's just one after the other after the other. Of It's not just stories, it's witnesses testifying who Jesus is. But now here we learn that the greatest witness of all is the Holy Spirit. One who will come from the Father and tell the world who Jesus Christ is and what his life and death really means. John fifteen twenty six. But when the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And that's the great meaning of the term paraclete in John, which we've translated advocate. The Spirit is the chief and greatest witness or advocate in the trial that's being made of Jesus Christ as men judge the claims that are being made about him and that are being made for him. Now, as we've already seen, if the Holy Spirit is another advocate for us, then we must have had a first advocate. And John tells us that we have. Again, going back to our responsive reading from 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So now we see that Jesus is our advocate. Verse 15 and then 21 through 25. Jesus is our advocate.
Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Then verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. I remember once I had a professor who asked the class, asked me, if you could describe Jesus in, what, in one word, if you could describe Jesus in just one word, what word would you choose? And I think the word that I would choose is love. Jesus Christ is our advocate. He is the one to whom we turn when we're in trouble. And the first thing we notice when we turn to him is the total love and acceptance that we receive from him. That in spite of the wrong things that I do, in spite of the wrong things that I say, in spite of the wrong things that I think, Jesus doesn't say, you miserable sinner, get away from me, although that would both be true and what I deserve. But rather, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And at the end of verse 21, he says, he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. God loves you. God has always loved you. Christianity at its root, at the bottom, is a love affair. Men and women come to love Jesus Christ and his heavenly Father because they experience the Father and the Son's love for them. But the one who makes us know and feel God's love, the one who works true love for God and Christ in us, the one who preserves that love through the rough and tumble of life in a sinful world, that one is the Holy Spirit. And what is the outward working of that love? What does having Jesus as our advocate mean to us in practical terms? Well, we see right here at the beginning of verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. To have the commandments of God means to understand them, to agree with them, to have a firm grasp of their meaning. But true love for Christ is not simply understanding his commandments, but actually living according to his commandments. And then for that one who loves Christ, Christ's relationship with him and her will mirror the relationship that he has with the Father, a point that he's going to come back to again in chapter 17. So now for the so what question. What do the facts of having Jesus as your advocate, the one who loves you, and having the Holy Spirit as your advocate, the one who teaches you the truth and lives in you, how does that make a difference in your life today in September 2007 here in Loudoun County, Virginia? Well, because of those things that come to us from our advocate, love, life, truth, Each believer in Christ has a personal relationship with him. And because we have that relationship, God tells us in his word, the Bible, how he wants us to live. And the Holy Spirit helps us to understand his word and apply it to our lives. 
And there are a few things that come through pretty clearly here in John 14. Enough so that I feel that I can confidently say these are things that God wants for you. So what is the text saying here? One of the keys to understanding any Bible text is repetition. So what gets repeated here in today's passage? And I've listed out the verses there for you. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. And if repetition is a way of stressing importance, then this is a very important point to Jesus. In Luke, uh, well, first here we see four times Jesus connects your love for him with your obedience to him. And in Luke chapter 6, Jesus had rebuked his disciples by saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? How many times could Jesus have said that to me or to you? Based upon our relationship with Jesus, he wants us to show our love for him by doing those things he taught us to do, by which the Holy Spirit reminds us of those things he taught us to do. And by tying together love and obedience, Jesus is describing his relationship with his followers. He's not giving us a set of burdensome commands. He's describing what what the relationship between Christ and Christ's followers looks like. Which is just what John said, again, in 1 John chapter 5. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. The test of authentic love for, to Jesus is whether or not you keep his commandments or keep his word. It sends a clear message to us, uh, first of all, about the authenticity of worship. If worship is the release of love to Jesus in song and prayer and music and meditation and preaching, then worship is authenticated by whether or not the worshipers keep the commandments of Jesus. What happens in this room cannot be separated from what happens outside of this room. What happens today can't be separated from what happens tomorrow and the rest of the week. God sees them together and he judges the reality of what happens here by what he sees us in us out there. But there's a this is a tricky passage. I said it's hard. It's not just the tongue twisters that are in there. Let's dig for a few minutes into this text and see first what it's not saying. Because it's liable to terrible misunderstandings. If you're here during Sunday school, Dale uh, gave some demonstrations of how ways the Bible could be misunderstood. And this one could be misunderstood, I think particularly in our culture in America, because we so much like to do and accomplish and achieve. And so the first thing the text is not saying that love is commandment keeping. It is not saying love is commandment keeping. When Jesus says, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, he does not mean that love and commandment keeping are the same thing. There are people who say that keeping the commandments of Jesus is the definition of loving Jesus. But consider a similar sentence. If you take this medicine, you will get well. Is taking the medicine the same thing as getting well? No. 
Getting well is one thing, taking the medicine is another. One leads to the other and in fact brings about the other. And that's the way it is here. One leads to the other. If you love me, it leads to. It brings about, you will keep my commandments. Loving Jesus and keeping his commandments are not the exact same thing. And the point is that if you will do the one, loving Jesus, it will bring about the other, keeping his commandments. The point is not that they're the same, but they are connected as root and fruit, which clearly is the point that Jesus is going to make in the next chapter, in chapter 15, with the vine and the branches. Loving Jesus is what brings about keeping the commandments. And so keeping the commandments is the test of authenticity of whether a person really loves Jesus. That's the first thing the text does not mean. It doesn't mean they're the same thing. Loving Jesus is no more uh, simply you know, just keeping his word. It's not saying that. The other thing the text does not mean is that keeping the commandments earns the love of Jesus. It doesn't mean that our love earns Jesus' love. And that's the part we don't like. It'd be a lot easier if our love earned Jesus' love and we could get a checklist and, you know, mark it off. I did five things today to earn Jesus' love. Isn't he lucky to have me on his team? It does not mean that Jesus loves us because we first loved him. But you could take it to mean that at first glance. I mean, he who loves me will be loved by my father. So Jesus says that he and his Father in heaven will love us in response to our obedience. He says that. Verse 23 answers a question. If a man loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. Again, Jesus promises that he and his Father will respond to our obedience with love. So the least we can say is there is a love from God the Father and a love from God the Son that is a response to our keeping the word of Jesus. But what I said was that this does not mean that he loved us because we first loved him and that our love somehow earns his love for us. And why did I say that? Because there's, first of all, there's texts that say just the opposite. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Clearly means that God's love for the world caused him to give his son before anyone loved him or obeyed the son. God love first. He says the same thing in Romans 5.8. Communicants class, pay attention. This is one of your memory verses. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love for us goes before any of our love for him. Without it, there would be no relationship at all. We can look even further in John. John 13.34. Jesus says, the new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now think for a moment. If keeping the commandments of Jesus is the way that we get Jesus to love us in the first place, then this text doesn't make sense because it says one of his main commandments is to love the way he has already loved us. He says, just as I have loved you. So there's a love of Jesus that goes before commandment keeping. Serves as a model. One more text that shows our commandment keeping is not what initiates our relationship with Jesus or earns his love. John 15, verses 9 and 10. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. 
abide in my love. If you keep, me, keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Two things. First, Jesus speaks of having already loved them. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And second, our commandment keeping is not described as earning Jesus' love, but as abiding in it. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That means the love is there first. And obedience shows that we're living and abiding and resting in it, like a branch in the vine. So I think our text does not mean that we initiate the relationship with Jesus and begin this sort of trade arrangement where we produce commandment-keeping and he pays us off with love. So there's a couple things it doesn't mean. And you've got to be careful because it's very important when we read the Bible that we say what it does mean, what it is saying. And that's the next thing we have here. What does it mean when it says the love of Jesus and his Father, in some sense, a response to keeping his commandments? Which is it? Does Jesus love us first and command us then to love like he does? Or does he respond to our love for him by loving us in return and making his home with us? And the answer is it's not an either-or situation. It's a both-and Both are clearly taught in God's word. They don't rule each other out. Both are true. God loved us first. Jesus loved us first before we kept any commandment. 1 John 4, 9, we love because he first loved us. So our love for him is a response to his love for us. And then seeing our love for him, he goes on loving us more and more in our response to him. In other words, A, God loves us. B, we respond to God's love by loving him back. And we love him back by keeping his commandments. And then C, God loves us even more in response to our love for him. And on and on it goes. It's a circular pattern of God loving us and us loving God. But, and this is key, it starts with God, not with us. It's not a matter of earning anything. Because loving him means being satisfied with him and all that he is for us and all that he promises for us. And how could a sinful enticement just lure us away if we're satisfied with all that Jesus is for for us? I mean, let's be even more practical about it. What does it look like? Common, everyday, ordinary situation. Just this week, I went to the grocery store And I bought some Diet Coke. No surprise there. They were having a sale. Two 12-packs for $5. So I bought four 12-packs. And I went through this self-service checkout line. And I put the four 12-packs through, and they go on the roller, and they go down to the end, and the total rang up, $7.50. Two for five dollars. I bought four. And unless they've changed math again, should be ten dollars. Not here. So I called the manager over, the guy who's there kind of supervising everything. I told him there's a mistake. I wasn't charged the right amount. The manager looked at the computer and he looked at my receipt, which clearly shows I bought four 12 packs of Diet Coke, and he said, 750. I said, 
I don't think that's right. It's two for five dollars. I bought four. It should be ten dollars. And he looked at again at the computer and said, No, the computer got it right, seven fifty. And I spent the next few minutes trying to convince him the computer did not get it right. And another teller came over, and she went through the whole drill of checking everything and looking at the receipt and looking at the computer, and she checked it all out and looked up and said, seven fifty. <laughs> and about this time, they were looking at me like I'm some kind of moron because obviously the computer could not be wrong. And I was about to start laughing at him. They're clearly getting annoyed with this fool who didn't believe the computer. So finally I left with my four 12-packs of Diet Coke for which I was only charged $7.50 and I went back to the office and looked up this store online and sent the store manager an email. Said, A, I was willing to pay the extra $2.50 and B, he better get his computers checked because he's losing a lot of money. I haven't heard back from him yet. He's probably shaking his head at that fool who doesn't believe the computer. Now what if I just looked at the receipt and walked out? knowing that I was charged the wrong amount of money. Would have been easy to do. But then I came in here this morning and I sang songs about how much I love Jesus and how much I trust Jesus and how much I love his word, how much he means to me. And this time I think it would have been Jesus shaking his head at the fool who doesn't really believe in him. It would be false worship totally inauthentic, completely unacceptable to say everything that I've said to you this morning but lie to save 250 And if that were the case, then I wouldn't be preaching the truth but just making a lot of empty religious noise, which in fact is something I've probably done before. And yes, you can say, eh, that's a pretty minor case. You know, it's somewhat of a trivial situation. But doesn't Jesus care about the minor things? Doesn't he want us to be faithful in the small things? Perhaps because even the small things reveal our obedience or our lack of obedience. Perhaps because even the small things reveal whether or not we actually love Jesus or whether we just like him. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Heavenly Father, we're a lot like the disciples. It's easy to talk about Jesus. It's hard to talk about the Holy Spirit. We don't really understand the Holy Spirit and what he's doing, even though you tell us here in your word. So this morning I pray that you would give us understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and what he's doing and how he's changing us. And Father, you would give us faith. Faith that we would believe in who you are and what you're doing, that we wouldn't demand to live by sight, that we would be able to live by faith. 
And then we would respond to you in faith, in love, by doing what you tell us, by being faithful in the small things. Father, your Spirit reminds us of your truth, of the things that Jesus has said. Remind us that obedience is just a way of describing our relationship with Jesus, of showing our love for Jesus, and that we love because he first loved us. Help us not to forget that. Remind us of that throughout the week. In Jesus' name, amen.